Welcome to JFI's Pop Parenting, where therapist Avram Natigel and me, Ellie Bass, use 80s and 90s teen flicks to talk about parenting, families, marriage, and love. Hi, this is Ellie. This week on Pop Parenting, Heather's. Do we really need to say more? Dark, sassy, and a brutal look at class-encased warfare in high school. In this episode, we're using this movie to dig into how kids need to be seen, heard, and understood. But we can't do that as parents if we ourselves are freaking out. We're also asking the question, what does it mean to be in control of ourselves? And the difference between being able and not being able to be in a state of choice. Okay, here we go. Okay. All right, let's do this. Yes. Let's rock and roll. Uh, okay. okay. Welcome back, everyone. Pop Parenting. We are looking at the movie Heathers. <laughs> one of probably one of my all time favorite films. Um, and, you know, I was watching it. I'm always watching these movies right now to see, like, could my kids watch this movie yet? <laughs> uh, I think the answer for this one was no. Not yet. I think it's still a little dark. Um, but wow, I, I actually, this one held up really well. I actually really enjoyed watching it again. I was surprised how much I enjoyed it. You're, you have a funny look on your face. What do you think? I thinking? was surprised how dark this film was. I, I yeah. remember watching it in 89. I went into the theater and I guess I was coming out of the John Hughes phase of just loving you know, movies that represented my adolescence. But I have to say this movie did not represent what I saw uh in high school although we'll, we'll get into the weeds of what i think uh the filmmaker was trying to convey yeah uh, which i which was true for um for a lot of my uh, adolescence uh but i was watching this film and you know ellie uh, when we were watching footloose and there was that sort of that rape scene that whatever was going on in the field and you said you were very uncomfortable yeah. watching the scene i felt like that often in this film yeah, look, I mean, every taboo right now that you're not allowed to talk about in a movie in any sort of satirical fashion is in this movie. <laughs> and not it's only that, but, you know, um, this movie was in 89. When was Columbine? The, the, the Columbine shooting? When was that? It was afterwards. And <clears throat> oh, it was definitely afterwards. Yeah. yeah was it 2000s? Um, it was in the 2000s, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was after 9-11 or no? Or the Columbine? Before. I forget. I don't remember why. What 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 are you thinking? Well, I was just you know the in the in the um, mid eighties or late eighties. Ninety nine. It was in ninety nine. Ninety nine. Okay, right. So in 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 the mid or late eighties, I don't recall anything other than that song. I don't like Mondays by uh, yeah. who 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 sang, who wrote that song. Uh, Oh, right, right, right. You're right. The boom, was the Boomtown boom? Rats. Right. And, um, oh my gosh. and uh, that song alluded to, I think, a real shooting that happened in a school where a right. kid came in and killed a bunch of his classmates or, yeah. or she, I, I don't know the, the details. Anyways, but besides that, I, I don't recall ever hearing about mass school shootings or blowing up your school or any of that kind of stuff until Columbine. So in a way, this film 
was sort of prophetic in a way of you know, what was coming around the bend with um, some of this stuff. Just to be right. clear, I am not suggesting in any way that, that there's a causal relationship at all in this film that would happen with Columbine. Although I think copycats post-Columbine would be true. Right. Right. But um, so watching this film in a post-Columbine world where there are metal detectors and police officers, and uh, this is more in the States than in Canada, but even in my kid's school, they do, um, what's that called, those drills? Um, Oh, What's like lockdowns, called? lockdown yeah, drills, do, which active shooter I, lockdown drills. They do. Everything. I never now. Okay. My, my kids go to a private Jewish school. And, and so they're, right. it's understandable why, why that, um, why that happens there. But uh, I just don't, that never happened when I was in high school. We never yeah. spoke about that. It wasn't even a thing. It didn't even cross my mind that that could happen. If there was a fight and there were fights often in my high school, it was with fists, knives were never pulled. Guns were never pulled. Um, so watching that now, uh, watching this movie now uh, was was it was a bit unnerving, actually yeah. for me. And what well, what was unnerving for you? Make it, like what made you uncomfortable? Well, the the, the last scene when he has the bomb strapped yeah. to himself. First of all, you yeah. know all the scenes of ISIS, and you know you and I are are both um, uh, I don't know what you call it, lay lay fans of the Middle East and and passionate yeah, about sure. Middle Eastern politics and. Um, so that scene with him opening his jacket with a bomb strapped to his yeah, waist it's terrifying. is, is just a, it's a, just a scary image, yeah. um, in general. Uh, and so that was unnerving. Um, there was a lot of like rapey type scenes in the movie where yeah, girls are it, getting it, kissed and they don't want to be kissed. And uh, all of it was like that. It was just, <laughs> it was this very sort of animalistic, antagonistic relationship between the girls and the boys in this movie for sure there was i mean i think winona Ryder's character is you know almost raped like three times in the movie right um so yeah there's definitely throughout the film this this theme of unconsensual relationships Right. Even her friendships with the girls, the way that the girls are with each other, the way she is with this guy, the way he they are with their parents, like everything feels fake and unconsensual and not the way that anybody wants it to be. And everyone's just sort of trying to figure out how to survive that situation. Um, so, yeah, it's really um, it's very difficult to watch. You, you have to hold that it's commentary, that it's satire. Um, it, I mean, there's a really, for, I don't know if you know, there's this famous story of uh, Shannon Doherty after they screened the film for the first time and she walks out of the theater and she's like, oh, I didn't realize it was a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> like she just played her character straight the whole way through. Like she didn't quite, because she's a 17 year old in school and she would just sort of come and go and play her parts. So I don't think she really got like what the script was. Um, whereas Winona Ryder and um, uh, the girl that played the third Heather McNamara, um, they they both read the script and they were like, I will do anything to be in this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I read the same it, thing. It was so different. And, and most people say about this movie, there was <clears> never <throat> anything made like it ever again. Um, and then so I saw, did you see what I sent you? Because the, the brother of the guy who wrote this movie wrote Mean Girls. Right. Now, I've never seen Mean Girls, um, mm. but when I was doing some research on this film, uh, that uh, it's a TV show, right? It's not a movie. Is it? No, is it Mean Girls is a movie. Oh, it's a movie. Yeah. So yeah, they yeah. were saying that, that this film, Heather's, while it was a box office flop, 
when it came out. I think it pulled in about um, uh, like a million one, dollars. Yeah, it was sorry? like one point one point one million or something. Right. Um, it, that it, uh, but it cost about three million to make. But what happened with this film, and th this is often true in pop culture, where something will flop at the box office, but the impact it has on the culture goes on for decades. Yeah. Uh, and this film um, influenced, uh, they were saying Mean Girls, 90120, a whole, a whole bunch of sort of things. I never would have drawn that connection uh, at all. Um, and then, of course, culminating in, in the school shooting movies, I think Elephant, who was done by... Um, Oh, who wrote Elephant? Ele oh my, oh, what's his, oh, it's going to kill me. Uh, a famous remember. indie filmmaker. Anyways, about school shootings. And, right. Um, okay, how about this? We're now in, we're getting into the weeds and my God, people who haven't seen Heathers are thinking, what is this film about? Where's that one foot that Ellie Bass always All right. delivers? Here we go. Let's give it a try on one foot for Heathers. Okay, so Heathers is uh, a satirical um film from the late 1980s i think it's in 89 yeah 1989 um it centers around uh westerberg high school mm -hmm. um where there are three girls named heather and veronica that are the most popular girls at school who pretty much terrorize their way through the day in order to maintain their social status um, basically bullying and making fun of people and setting people up to just, you know, for cruel humor. Um, and also, you know, to the delight and entertainment of the other, of the popular boys who are the jocks in school. Um, and introduce, and Veronica is like, you know, already by virtue of her name, a bit of a dark horse and kind of not completely part of it, but she's clearly been accepted into this clique and sold her soul a little bit to do it because we find out later she was a very smart girl and, and she was like uncool. And somehow she managed to make it to the top of the, of the case in this particular high school. And along comes this boy, Jason Dean or JD as he's known in the movie. And she sort of sees him across the cafeteria and she can see he's sort of watching the ministrations of these three as like how they control the school the way that they do. And they start to have a conversation and it ends up that, you know, she and JD start to date, but it sort of all centers around her hatred for her friends and his supporting her in her hatred of her friends. And they basically end up uh, you know, they go, uh, the first Heather number one, as she sort of referred to in all of the scripts and, and the ways of organizing them, uh, takes her to a frat party. At the frat party, uh, Veronica uh, gets drunk and is almost, you know, raped by one of the frat boys there. And then like throws up in the hallway and the Heather that brought her to the party is like, that's it. You're out. You're never going to survive this socially. I'm going to crucify you at school. And I'm going to tell everyone you barfed at the party and you were totally like a drag. And so Veronica's freaking out and JD finds out this and they go to Heather's house in the morning and they're like, oh, let's give her something. So she's going to puke her guts out. And then I, I, you know, I won't be a problem for me if she tells everyone that I puked. But they, JD swaps out what they were going to give her for drain cleaner, I think. And they basically kill her. 
And so the movie begins where they decide, like they start offing anybody who is at the top of the social pecking order in the school in various nefarious ways where JD keeps fooling Veronica into saying, no, no, we're not really killing them, but then they actually kill them. And JD's eventual sort of end game is to blow the school up with the idea that, you know, if they all die, then in heaven, they'll all be equals and they can all have a lovely ending. Um, and in fact, I actually read that the original ending for this script was that he does blow the whole school up and they show a prom where everybody's like dancing together happily as equals. Um, which is just terrifying in the end that does that is not what is what happens when owner writer as character decides to defy him and goes after him to try to stop him from blowing up the school. Uh, in the meantime, one of the other Heathers has taken over as the head of the pack, which is Shannon Doherty's character. And while Renone Wider is trying to take down JD and stop him from blowing up the school, um, you know, the regular sort of rumor mill is back up and running again. Uh, at the end, she shoots him in the finger and he ties a bomb around himself and realizes that she's much stronger than he thought she was. And then he blows himself up and she lights her cigarette out of the ashes. <laughs> Any, anybody who hasn't seen this film, who just heard you recap this film, their jaws hitting the floor now going, what in the world? Why did Ellie- oh, And all the murders in the movie are staged as suicides. So there's there's just so many taboo subjects in here that no one would allow anyone to make a movie about in this way. Um, even though, you know, I was thinking like people think that Netflix and all this stuff is so raunchy, but it really <clears throat> does take itself so seriously. They're like so careful to have trigger warnings and like there was no such thing. Like this movie was out and out chaos. Um, yeah. So, okay, I'm, I'm really anxious to hear your notes. What'd you get? <laughs> um, oh God, I don't even know where to begin uh, right now. I think, let me just sit, throw this out here because um, you know, suicide is one of these things. When I was working in high schools uh, and agencies, there was always, I found, a disproportionate amount of time and energy uh, speaking to parents, uh, talking as professionals about suicide. And when you think about uh, the 80-20 principle, the Pareto principle, I think that, you know, 80% of our results is 20% of, of the work that we do. Right. Um, we spend a lot of time on a lot of other stuff that actually doesn't produce the results. Um, so it's just such a loaded topic. And on pop parenting, we really never have touched on the topic of suicide. Um, so I think it's important that although we're saying the word, I want to quote one of the actresses from the film here. So I'm going to okay. quote uh, one of the actors. So the quote, uh, this is from Heather McNamara. McNamara? Yeah. Uh, Heather McNamara. Um, oh, oh, sorry. This is from Lisa, um, uh, Leslie Ann Falk, who played Heather McNamara, one of the Heathers. Okay. Quote, no one commits suicide in this movie, points out. Uh, Lizzie Ann Falk, who played right. Heather McNamara, Yellow Heather in the film. They are murdered. Heather's is actually a revenge fantasy. Actually, he commits suicide at the end of the movie. But not in the way I think that that the film, it, it, you know, if, if, if you're taking this film, if you're yes, going to discuss this sure. film right. as, as an idea about right boy, when kids get upset, they all off themselves. Right. Um, yeah, that's not Heather, what happens. What, right. what, what she's saying is that um, 
if you're going to point fingers at anything, this is about teens being really, really bad and murdering other kids because right. of some pecking order. So I just wanted right. to throw that out here. Um, I'm, uh, you, you know, uh, although I'm the clinician here on this pop podcast, I am not going to be touching on adolescent uh, suicide. I don't right. think this this is not what this film is about. Yeah. Um, and so I just wanted to throw it out there as a as a disclaimer that if people are wondering well, how come he hasn't touched on this, this isn't the film. You and I might choose a different film to talk about that. And um, as I think that you and I often will discuss via text or Facebook Messenger, um, we will prompt the audience beforehand with an introduction before we would do that. Okay, right. anything uh, anything you want to touch on with that or? or, or no, I think I think it's really true. You know, the, the misnomer of this movie is that it's all about teen suicides. But yeah, it's really it's really teens murdering each other. Um, and and the intensity and the pressure and the satire around what is described in that article that I read, which is the, the Machiavellian feel of every teen cafeteria, like high school cafeteria. So I think that's where where this movie really points to. So suicide isn't really a relevant topic when we're addressing this film, oddly enough. Um, so yeah. So I would say, and I'm first of all, we're we're in Ontario. Ellie and I are both in uh, Toronto, Ontario. So I think it is apropos to quote the great late lyricist and drummer Neil Peart of Rush. Oh God. <laughs> we have to we have to quote Rush. I, let me just first uh, uh, start with um, the Devil Horns as we uh, as I. Uh, so this is from one of their hits called Subdivisions. I'm going to quote the lyrics here. Okay, that was apropos. a great song. That was a, uh, that I, th was a great song. This is apropos. The video is fantastic. Yeah. Which I think yeah, I think the video was shot actually over um, uh, Thornhill uh, around there. Okay, Subdivisions. In the basement bars, in the back of cars, be cool or be cast out. Any escape might help to smooth the unattractive truth, but the suburbs have no charms to soothe the restless dreams of the youth. So I think that uh, nothing like a little rush in the morning, <laughs> the, the, the late, the late, Neil <laughs> okay. The late, um, the late Neil Pert, what I think he was trying to suggest here is talked about quite a bit here in this film. Um, so I'm going to uh, share my own uh, personal um, experience of how this played out for me. Um, uh, I grew up in a family. I wasn't allowed to play any musical instruments, which is really weird when you when I say that out loud because one would think that that would lead to higher culture in this. But my folks were very uh, very concerned that um, I would join a rock band and tour, and the joke was on them because I ended up joining a rock band at nineteen twenty and did that until my late. Uh, twenties. Uh, so ha ha mom and dad. Okay. Uh -huh. So anyways, <laughs> I wasn't allowed to play. So uh, in the, in the pecking order of things, when I, where I, when I was in high school, I was, right. I would say niche to here, niche to there. I wasn't, I wasn't in the kind of, I wasn't in the crowd of geeks and losers or whatever. I wasn't in the goth crowd. I wasn't in the cool crowd. We were kind of like in the middle of nothing. Right. And, and it's not good being in the middle of nothing because you want to be seen It's one of the hardest places to be. It's sure. the worst, especially <laughs> in high school, right? Yeah. And so I would walk to school and I saved every cent of my newspaper money. I delivered newspapers, all my friends did. And I saved up and I bought myself an Iowa Walkman, uh, a really good one. Uh, Iowa was the best. Sony was pretty good, but Iowa was the, I, I think Iowa was the best. And I would play heavy metal music as I would walk to school. And in my fantasy, as I was walking to school, I was in a band and in the crowd were the cool kids just 
amazed and staring at me and clapping. And I would have this fantasy walking to high school every single morning. I would walk to school and I'd be on stage and in the audience, it was always the coolest kids just staring at me. And I remember I'd walk Ellie and I would get goosebumps. It, it, it was, it was a visceral experience for me, this fantasy of having all this power being on stage. Um, so I, I, I think that this film really does touch on in the way they use the soundtrack, that sort of um, ambient Brian Eno-esque sort of soundtrack um, that comes in and out of the, the film. The dreamy sequence, a lot of the sequences are sort of dreamy. You can't tell if it's yeah. a dream or if it's not at times. Yeah. Um, this fantasy of trying to maneuver yourself as a peer in high school to a different position jostling for power uh, in a way and mm -hmm. that's how I saw this film and I think it's very true and, that, and that's what I, I'm pointing out with my own story is that in my fantasy when I walked to school for those 15 minutes I had the power on stage with my guitar and everybody was looking at me and yeah. wanted to see what I would do and then I take off my walk and I <laughs> end up in school with my other friends who were middle of the road and no one saw us and uh right. And it, and it stings because you know very clearly in high school where you are in that pecking order, where you stand at lunchtime, who you're hanging out with, who has the cars in the parking lot. Yeah. Um, and I think Neil Peart, um, uh, uh, you know, it's, it, it's a beautiful line, you know, but the suburbs have no charms to soothe the restless dreams of the youth because what young person doesn't have a dream? I, I, I mean, right. barring serious clinical depression when I've worked with kids and I say to them, like, what, what do you want to be? What are your dreams? What do you do creatively? And they look at me and they're like, nothing, nothing. Right. But that's a very small, small part of, I would say, the adolescent populace. Most kids have great dreams mm -hmm. they might be crazy to an adult but they have great dreams of whether it's becoming a multi-millionaire entrepreneur or sexual fantasies they have great dreams big right. visions right um and uh i think this film does a very good job of what what is going on behind those glassy stairs that you're getting at the dinner table with your kid and yeah. what they're thinking about and fantasizing about their their hurts and their passions um and all of that so um yeah, that's my that's my success my... of the film when I was I mean, in 1989, like I was just out of high school. So for us, when we saw this film, it was like, oh, my gosh, somebody just filmed what's going on in my in my head, what it was like to be in high school and the intensity of those dynamics and feeling like an adult, but not having any agency to make certain choices and, you know, really just trying to slog your way through not just the academic work, but the, the social aspects of it. So yeah, I think, I think that's why people love it so much because in many ways, it is the amplified virgin, version of what we would have wanted to do in moments in high school when you, had, you saw that there were people who were abusing power and being horrible and, or you weren't part of the, the upper echelon cliques. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. I think it was it's part of the charm and part of the brilliance of this of this film. So I am going to share with you a quote here uh, because there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of parts of this film uh, I think that we could discuss from an orientation of adolescence. But I, uh, the title of our podcast is called uh, and webinar is called Pop Parenting. And so let me let's just throw this out here. I mean. I'll throw this idea out here. 
I, I think that the way the adults are depicted in this film, whereas in John Hughes films, adults are really sort of on the periphery if they're even there. Pretty in Pink, the father is quite um, uh, focused on, but generally the, the adults are on the periphery. But in this film, the adults are, are sort of, um, what would you, like caricatures of like, just like kids in a way they're the all the adults in the film yeah i find are either like lost or caught up in their own stuff and um and i think it's summed up by uh, veronica uh, played by uh, one on a writer when you know um what's the line with her dad her dad will say um why am i still smoking these cigarettes and she turns to him and she goes well because you're an idiot and then her mom says oh you too Right. And, they, and their pattern repeats and it repeats several times, no matter whether it's her going to prom or her going to a funeral, it, the pattern repeats. It's actually a brilliant way of showing the what feels like a completely irrelevant part of your life at that time. Well, I, you know what? Let, let's go there because I didn't think about that. Flesh that out. What, what do you mean? What's brilliant about it? I'm kind of I don't know what you mean. Because I think teens see their parents as caricatures of themselves in that age right? It's all bluster and they see through a lot of the things that parents are trying to hide a lot of the times. I think that they see their parents as irrelevant um, and just sort of like, why am I even, why am I even interacting with these people anymore? You know, like they don't know what they're talking about most of the time. And, and so I think they, you know, by repeating that scene over and over, it gives that sense of the surreal, um, you know, uh, irrelevant quality of that relationship often with that you have as a teen with your parents. Um, right. Yeah. I, I think, you know, that's why I think the late Charles Schultz, who did Charlie Brown, uh, when he depicted the teacher's uh, voice of wah, 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 when, I, when I'm working with parents in my practice and I, uh, you know, and they say to me, um, and the, they're, they're sort of, playing out different scenarios of how they're going to talk to their kids about something that's bothering them, right? And so they'll say, I'm going to say this, this, and this. And I've heard them say this in my office 12, 14, 20 times already. So I'll say to them, let me ask you something. Just let's throw this out here. When's the last time you said that to your kid, right? And either their spouse will get a smirk on their face, like, you know, he says it to our teenage daughter, like every single night, or they will get they'll get the question um and then i'll you know i'll share the charlie uh, the charlie brown line of and of course the parents they're caught in this conundrum because they'll say some version of i know that's what i sound like to my kids i see it in there but i don't know how to talk to them i don't know what to say i'm so worried and anxious about x y and z and this touches ellie on something you and i have talked about uh many times um, David Freeman, my, my co-author, who talks about, you know, that kids need to be seen, heard, and understood. But, but what David is referring to is that you have to have something before you can truly see, hear, and understand the kid you have versus the kid you wish you had. And that means you have to be calmer. Now, this is really hard for parents. So I'm going to read a quote here from a family therapist. Um, this is it was from an article. It doesn't make a difference what the article is about, but I'm going to read this quote and maybe we can talk about it in reference to how these parents are depicted in the movie and how I think, again, this is a movie and it's fantastical, but I think there's some truth here. And I think you're touching on some of that 
truth when you talked about the brilliance of, of, of this um, of, of those scenes. So here, here's a quote. This is from uh, Rosalind Rice, a family therapist in the U.S. Quote. Children, teenagers sense anxiety and change in their parents. The parents are the blueprints for the kids. Whatever the hot issues are for the parents become the hot issues for the children. The bottom line is this. The more grown up a parent is, the less children will be affected by changes. Okay, so to the degree that a parent is, you can call it anxious or immature, or, or by the way, this sounds like it's, I, I'm saying that there's something, uh, the parent is at fault for something. I am not saying that. I am not, I, I believe, by the way, and I, I mean, I, I believe this based on working with parents right across Canada, that barring some sort of sociopathic thing, which I don't do forensic psychiatry, so I don't see that, every parent that I've ever met regardless of situation, is doing the best they can with the tools they had and the generational um, functioning they have had over time. That, that's what I, I have seen. I don't know any parent that wakes up in the morning and goes, you know, I, I, you know, how can I really mess up my kid today? What, what can I do today to, you know, to, to really you know, put them behind the eight ball? I don't know parents like that. Right. Um, and so when you see these kids in school, okay, doing what they're doing, I think the assumption is that that's just adolescence. It's just adolescence. That's what kids do. And I am going to tell you that it's one of the great myths, and, and, and I have to, quite a few of my colleagues buy into this myth, that, you know, it's a job for teenagers to tell their parents to F off and move away from them. That, that is what adolescence is, to tell their parents to F off, you have no role in my life, and to find other adults who aren't your family and yeah, i always felt un uncomfortable with that I was what do you mean i always felt uncomfortable with this assumption that it's a teenager's job to be crazy and rebellious, and rebellious. and act out like i never really because i certainly remember as a teen i i didn't even though i was crazy and rebellious and acting out I don't remember making any kind of conscious choice that this was what my life was supposed to be about. It was all about, I'm struggling and this sucks and I don't know how to deal with it. And I don't feel like I have people around me who are helping me navigate it. And, and that was hard. And so I don't, you know, the assumption that, oh, you're just a teenager and this is your job well, okay, so there is there is part of teenagehood that is about individuation, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is an important developmental like milestone, for lack of a better term. But I'm not sure that developmental milestone always has to manifest as being a rebellious jerk to everybody. Um, so that's where I just, I always, that assumption never sat right with me. Like, oh, oh, good luck. Now you have teenagers. You're never going to talk to them again for the next six years. Well, I, now that you heard it out loud, you will hear this often in talks um, when a guidance counselor or someone stands up and they try to explain to parents, don't worry, this is just a normal part of adolescence. And I would argue that that's just not true. Um, the individuation part of becoming your own person figuring out your own thoughts separate from your family, but borrowing the traditions and the rituals um, and the principles that work for you can happen with a drive in a car with your father on a two-day road trip and a beautiful encounter where you are still working your stuff out, but you are still connected. That is the very little definition of what you and I, LA, have talked about, this idea of differentiation of self and family systems theory. 
where it's not just your ability to be your own person when you're outside of the purview of your family and friends. It's when you're connected. You know, Murray Bowen's great observation was we're all pretty good in a coffee shop by ourselves with our book of Nietzsche and muffin and coffee. We're very good in those moments. It's when we go home. It's when we go home for Christmas or Hanukkah or Passover and we're in the presence of our aunt, grandmother, sibling, mother, how we start to, how anxiety starts to modulate what we say, think, and do. So it, I would argue that it's the opposite in terms of what is quote unquote a, um, a healthy part of adolescence. It's do they feel comfortable enough to go through these metamorphosis changes with their parents and their grandparents, not despite them. And I think in this film, which in this film, while it is a satire, I think what the filmmaker is saying, when you have parents who are trying to be hip and cool, like I, I, look, I work with some of these parents, they're doing it from the best of them. What I mean by that is they think that if I just, you know, get, you know, get a TikTok video and be cool with my kids and like, you know, not get too heavy handed. And, and generally, by the way, these parents, what they're doing is the opposite of what they saw growing up. So they felt when they were growing up, they were oppressed by a heavy hand. And so they make a commitment to themselves. This usually happens at the age of 17, 18, 19, that when I had become a parent myself, I'm going to do the opposite of what I saw. And they do to a certain degree. And then they're flummoxed because they're in a situation where, hold on, I'm doing the opposite of what I saw, but why am I getting the same? Why am I fighting with my kid all the time about stuff? Like what, this doesn't make any sense to me. Um, you know, <laughs> it's always interesting to me when I, when I work with a teenager, and, the, and this, this happens often, Ellie. I don't know if, this, if you've ever encountered this with uh, any yeah, teenagers or this experience. And, you know, it happens in camp sometimes. So you'll have a teenager, a 15-year-old girl, right? And she befriends a 17-year-old staff. And she really feels comfortable. She's talking to him about, you know, her boyfriend or something. And, and he's telling her. And then he discloses to her something about his relationship, let's say sexually. And she's like, Oh, I, I, I didn't like, I wish I would, you would have told me that. And a boundary was violated at that point. All of a sudden a boundary was violated. And it's almost like young people, as much as they say they want to just be palsy palsy with, with, with their parents and their elders, they yeah. don't, they right. don't, they want to know that whatever weird sexual aggressive impulses I have, that there is a clear line between me and you, and that right. you don't want me in that way, that there's this line here, and that I can go crazy, right? And that you have the maturity and the self-regulation and leadership to not violate that because I'm, I'm assuming you are wise in this way. When a teenager feels that that is not true, that you and me are the same, and that you've got nothing to offer me in terms of guidance or wisdom, not in terms of advice, but how you're living your own life, right? Then it is a little bit of a Lord of the Flies type thing. And that's what you get in this film, which is the adults and not just the parents, even in the staff room, you know, the way the filmmaker depicted the guidance counselors and the teachers, it's like no one knew what the hell to do. Yeah, there's no right? wise elders in the film. There's so, no wise really elders. In fact, it goes to the absolute extreme when you see the relationship between JD and his father, where it's not only is it inappropriately best friends, they literally are referring to each other in the opposite roles where jd calls his dad son and his dad calls him dad it, it is a wild flipping of the paradigm where you see no one's in charge here and um 
and and the one moment of wise elder ishness is i don't know if you remember when um veronica's mother says something to her where they find out like jd tries to plant the idea that she's going to kill herself and she's um she's arguing with her parents and she's like you know none of it you know this all sucks none of it is the way i want it to be and then um basically her mom says well that's what being an adult is like you keep telling me that you want to be an adult and grown up well being a grown up and being an adult is nothing being the way you want it to be mm -hmm. and it was it was i think one of the only lines in the film where an adult says something bleak but truthful yeah that was a powerful scene um it was almost it was almost kind of like came out of left field because i didn't see that coming So my co-host has just <laughs> left to get the doorbell. So I am on my own here. I am going to share something um, here as well. And um, I'm going to uh, actually, you know what? No, we're going to pause. Ellie is going to edit this out. That's what's going to happen. We will be back. Ellie will be back. Oh, Ellie, uh, I don't okay. hear you. Sorry, someone at okay. my door. All right, so back. Ellie, I just I didn't keep going because okay. um, we'll that kind of came in. Well, you'll edit that part out. <laughs> um, okay, my butler's so, not home. They couldn't answer the door. <laughs> so you were touching on um, uh, the one moment in the film where an, an adult rose to the occasion and sort of, uh, uh, you know, the question, of course. You know, the question, of course, is could Veronica hear her mother um, when you spend your whole, you know, so many years um, with a, a parent that sort of sounds like Charlie Brown's teacher? Can you hear someone when they rise uh, above? Um, right. Do, do you think that Veronica could hear that in that moment? When well, her mother gave a little she lecture? Was already freaking out and emotional, so I don't think she was hearing much. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't feel that the way that her mother communicated that there was no connection. It may have been a hard truth, but it wasn't, it wasn't given based on a loving connective relationship. Like if you ask the question, did, did Veronica feel seen, heard and understood in that moment? Mm -hmm. I don't think so. So right. I don't, I don't think so. I don't think it was hurt. I think it was just like a suck it up, deal with it type of comment rather than like, wow, you're really freaking out right now. Like, let's figure this out. Right, 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 right. Okay. What else? Ellie, let, let me hear from you. What, uh, what other theme in the film uh, struck you as interesting? Um, one thing that struck me was when I saw the level of self-hate that the, the first Heather has for herself. Hmm. Like when I saw at that frat party after she's with the guy at the party and she sort of spits at herself in the mirror and you sort of realize that as much as everybody else hates her, she hates herself, but she feels like she's doing what she has to do in order to survive. And um, I think that was really interesting. I remember reading something by Lisa Damore who wrote a book called Untangled. So she sort of talks about teen girls 
And I remember her saying, asking this really poignant question. And I asked it once to one of my high school classes, like, if you were to make a list of the most popular girls and then make a list of the most liked girls, would those be the same list? Hmm. And I would say 99% of the time, every girl in the class was like, no. And that there was a real recognition that the people who are popular are not necessarily the most liked. And so, you know, in a way, this Heather was creating this situation where, okay, she was on top of the social ladder and everyone was terrified of her, but no one liked her and she hated herself. And to me, that was really interesting to sort of notice that one scene where you see it come out, where she sort of spits at herself in the mirror. And yeah. Yeah. You know, um, the, uh, the, the cliche that, you know, a blessing can sometimes be a curse. I think is true for adolescent girls more than it is for adolescent mm -hmm. boys. Yeah. Um, I've worked with, uh, over the years, I've worked with girls who blossomed very early. They, they matured very early um, or they were very attractive and, and sort of attractive in a way that by the time they were, it usually happens at 11 or 12 where they look like they're 16, 17. And so they're getting all this attention um, for their body and their looks. And what happens is that, um, you know, unless you have, a very clear uh, um, sense in one's family of the internal, you know, that you grow up in a family that what is internal, you know, is at least as important as what's external. Right. It is, it's very hard to ask, a, you know, a 12, 13 year old to say, oh, ignore that. So that's not important um, because it is, we live in Western culture and, and right. it's just part of the culture. Yeah. Um, this shouldn't be very complex for anybody who is on YouTube or TikTok. This should yeah. make a, a lot of sense. And so some of these women were in my office, they were in their 20, you know, 20, 21, 22. Uh, and I remember one particular woman, it, it was really interesting. She was um, very, uh, very depressed, um, uh, beautiful, accomplished in certain ways, but very depressed. And I, and I, I asked her, you know, about her high school experience and she was part of a cool, cool crowd. Um, and I said to her, did you know you were cool? Like, like, do people in the cool crowd know that they're cool? <clears throat> and she said, yeah. She goes, I knew I was in the cool crowd. I knew I was beautiful. I knew how people stared at me and I hated myself because all they, all I knew was that I had this body and all I knew that people saw me for was this body. And once she gave away her body, yeah. right. For whatever attention the, there was sort of a vacuous thing behind that. She couldn't figure it out. I have to say this young woman did very well for herself. It, she, she sort of came into her own uh, emotionally, intellectually in her twenties. But the, the point is that, um, that, that those scenes with Heather, um, I think are, um, are true. I, I've worked with that and it's tricky because you have to, it, it's, it's, we've, we've talked about this before, Ellie, parenting is a game of centimeters and inches sometimes. Yeah. Uh, for some of these teens, you just kind of hope they squeak by in a way, right? And yeah. don't do anything too drastic. And if they get on the other side, and hopefully there's a wise elder or just the passage of time that allows people to cultivate something beyond what is surface. Um, and uh, anyway, so, uh, you know, I, I just thought that was, um, that was realistic. I, I, I'd like to share something with you, Ellie, that I thought was, um, was poignant in this film for me. Uh, this is when um, Veronica is writing in her diary and she has this line. She says something, I have no control over myself when I'm with JD. Uh, 
And I thought to myself, what's the difference between someone who has a semblance of control over themselves in the throes of passion? Um, and this, this, I think, is true for adults and teenagers. Yeah. What is the difference between someone who is in the presence of another person in the throes of, of an heightened emotional state? And this could be politics. It could be sex. It could be spirituality. What's the difference between someone who is able to control themselves and someone who has no ability to control themselves and get sort of caught up in the 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 the, the swishes and the and and the intensity of of an emotion? I thought it would just be interesting to maybe throw that out and discuss that a bit, either people we know or experiences that we've had. Or uh, you know, or, I think JD nails her at one point where he says that you actually really wanted this. What do you mean? You know, I, I think at one point she's like, I never wanted this. I never wanted them dead. And he's like, yes, you did. Admit it. Hmm. And he kind of nails her because, and she can't argue with it because she wrote in her diary several times how much she wanted Heather dead. Right. So I think like, I think it's a scale, not a binary. Like you're either totally in control or totally out of control. And I think that in this case, you know, the part of her that would have controlled that situation, um, just that volume got turned down in the face of her hormones, in the face of having, you know, lusting after JD and in the face of her absolute utter anger and frustration with the situation. So I think, could she have controlled herself? Sure. But I don't think there was a lot of role modeling in her life of what it would look like to control a situation that had so much uh, passion and chaos mixed together. There was no one out there saying, yeah, this is really intense. So here's how you navigate that. So she just was caught up in it. You'd have to have people show you what to do when things are that intense. Yeah, I think this, what you're touching on, I think, um, uh, at least to my mind, um, reminds me of that the quote I just said about, um, you know, the bottom line is the more a grown up a parent is, the less the children will be affected by any changes in the environment um, at school, etc. Um, lest anyone think, um, at least from what I'm saying, that this is easy. This is not easy. This is very, very hard. It's also hard to recognize you know, it's one of, if anyone can point to, you know, uh, what are some of the curative parts of therapy versus talking to a friend, it would be this. Um, I think when a client is in my office, they are blind to their foibles. You know, as, as Mary Louis von Franz, uh, she trained with Carl Jung in, in Switzerland. She became a famous Jungian analyst. A friend of mine, his father in Vancouver, uh, uh, went to Switzerland and trained with Mary Louis von Franz. And she said to him, um, if you're going to become a Jungian analyst, you have to start analyzing your dreams. And he said to her, right. I don't dream. He's like, I've tried, but I don't dream. <laughs> and she, she said, um, well, keep a notebook by your bed and, and write down every night. Um, uh, I am going to remember my dreams, something like that. Um, and he did. And so he was getting his dreams and, and he was trying to understand them. Um, and he couldn't make sense of them. He was very frustrated with that because he was being trained as an analyst. And so he asked her, why can't I make sense of these dreams or something? And she said, you know, the problem with trying to do this on your own is the same reason why you can't see your own ass, <laughs> which I thought was funny because yeah. it's true. You can't, it's behind you. It's like, I, I mean, I'm not an owl. My head doesn't go all, I'm, I'm not Linda right. Blair from The Exorcist. Right. I can't or turn like my head you've around. never actually seen your own face. You've only seen it in the mirror. 
Ooh, Ellie, I, I don't know. you're going to have to unpack that. What do you mean by that? I don't know. I, what do you mean? I see my face right now, actually, in the Zoom. Yeah, but you've never actually like looked at your face in real life, that's, right? So this that's idea true. of being able to look at yourself is like, um, it's a very odd um, idea. You can only, you all often only see yourself outside of yourself in relation to another or like being reflected back to you. Right. Right. And so um, I, what happens uh, in my office, not always, but often, is that uh, people tell themselves stories um, and it's a well-crafted narrative to see themselves in a certain way because it, 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 it feels better. So I'll have people in my office say, um, you know, uh, I'm just... Uh, you know, I'm really compassionate, but everything in their life suggests that, <laughs> that they're not so compassionate. And actually, it's the opposite, that they need to get angry. Right. And they're so they're so allergic to anger that they double down on this saccharine sweet thing. But the results of their lives would suggest that things are a mess. Yeah. So when therapy, I think, um, works is when therapists with a gentle touch, right, push back on maladaptive ways of seeing oneself and you can do that that's where the genogram is helpful genograms don't lie it's all factual so if i show right. you three generations I'm, let's just take a biological thing if i show you three generations of men who've had heart attacks in their 40s that go back five generations now you could sit there and say oh whoa 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 like la 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 this isn't going to happen to me that's fine that's fine but you can't argue with the fact that your father your grandfather and your great-grandfather all died of a heart attack at the age of 42 and so one of the things that's helpful here um, is that uh, when Veronica says that she has no control over herself, I think it would be fair to, it, I think it would be a reasonable assumption to go to where you're going, which is that where, what kind of environment does one have to grow up in where you don't cultivate over the, those crucial years before you're a teenager, this idea of having some semblance of control over one's impulses um, strong feelings and this. And again, I don't, I don't hear this as parent blaming. I do hear this though, and I'm sorry if this stings, I do hear this as a family problem, meaning that it is something in the family. It is not the parents, but I guarantee you it's somewhere in the family. And again, when I'm working with clients, I try to explain that it's important to know what you're up against as a parent so that you can, you can work on some of this stuff so that your kid at least has a shot at doing a bit better than what you saw growing up when you were uh, a teenager. But um, I, I mean, I would throw in there as leaders of the family, mm -hmm. right? Parents are supposed to be the leaders of the family. You've yes. spoken about this. I you know, you know, it fits with this theme that we speak about a lot about wise elders. Like the kids aren't the wise elders in the family, right? The parents are. And if the parents aren't able to navigate chaos, in a way, if the parents aren't able to deal with their own anxiety, if the parents aren't able to model what it looks like to have control, then why on earth are they expecting their kids to do that? Well, Ellie, you just brought up a great example. JD's father, right? JD's <laughs> father, right, shows a videotape, right? I don't even know the details, but essentially, essentially, JD's father, uh, it reminds me of Pretty, uh, Pretty Woman, where it's kind of like, I just destroy, like, you get in my way, I'll destroy your company. 
you get in my way. Yeah. He right? like laughs about, you know, taking these people's homes, blowing them up and, you know, getting ready to build a condo on top of it with glee, knowing he's destroying these poor people's lives. And, and you can tell, again, it's a film, everybody. It's a film. I know it's a film, but I don't think it's so far from the truth in terms of things I've seen as a clinician. When, when JD shows the, um, when JD shows the video of this building being destroyed, uh, sorry, his father, there is no context for JD. Like there is no, you know, explanation. It's just, it's pure, raw power. That's all it is. And so is it any wonder that when people get in JD's way, right, he uses the same sort of thinking Right. And sort of he gets also caught up in his own, you know, the, the, the film tries to portray him as this cool cat. You know, he's like a cool cat. And, and in a right. way, there is some sort of bizarre, twisted sociopathic justice to J.D. Right? Yeah, <laughs> like, there, totally. is, there yeah. is. But he uses the same sort of unempathic raw power that his father uses. Yeah. Right. To get where he feels he needs to get to. And so I, I agree with you. It's a, it's interesting, Ellie, the work that we do, because you are the director of the Jewish Family Institute, and you bring in speakers, and people come, and they're very anxious. Uh, you know this. When parents come, they they could be doing a thousand things. But when they come to a JFI event, they're coming there because they're really worried about something, or they're anxious about something, and they're, they're, um, they're very receptive to what's being thrown their way. So it's a, it, whenever I'm speaking at JFI, I, I, I take it very seriously to to straddle that line between not suggesting, because I don't believe this, that it's all your fault. Right. You know? It's of all course. your fault. Your kids are the way they are. Right. And at the same time, not going too far and saying, you have no responsibility for this whatsoever. Right. 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 It's all, right. you know, you know what some people say, we've talked about this before, Ellie, it's all the adolescent brain. It's just the adolescent brain. Right. It's just, it's just, you know, synapses doing what they do. Right. right. You did the right. best you could, you know, mom and dad, right? So I think that that idea um, that we have a very small window, and it really is a small window, by the way, if you think about the ages of your kids, yeah. it, it's not a huge window for their entire lives where we have to keep the focus on ourselves and get clear on what we believe and think and move the focus a little bit off our kids, which is really counterintuitive for a lot of parents because mm -hmm. when we get anxious, we tend to double down on our focus on our teenagers. And so I think it's important, um, uh, and, and which is really why I do support uh, so strongly the work that you've been doing with JFI and, and the conferences you put on, because that idea that it provides people, adults, just a little bit of space in their day to reconsider strategically how they're, how they're working and operating. And then of course, providing resources for parents to go and find wherever they need to, to get better at this game. Um, I think is, is, uh, is very important. I, I, I have to say, mind you though, Ellie, I also do wonder if, um, what's that uh, idea, Ellie, you know, the people who show up to events like yours, parenting workshops and stuff, are those really the, I, I do sometimes wonder, you know, are those the parents who really need it? I, I've often found that the people who are, for mm. example, resistant to therapy, like families who come to my office right. and they'll tell me that, you know, I've been to 20 therapists and they go on and on. And, but my sister or my brother, Right. And I think, and it's interesting because um, I do wonder that sometimes if that uh, the people who are most resistant to this sort of change um, are, are the ones who could benefit um, from this. But anyways, those yeah, are my thoughts. And, at, on and on the other hand, I also wonder, like, I remember reading at the beginning of your book, like usually the person that gets in touch is the most anxious in the system. 
So often the parents who will come to parenting talks, even though you don't want to stigmatize it, because it is that the fact that they care and they want to get better at it. And that's really been, you know, my focus with the JFI uh, around doing parenting university was this idea that, um, you know, the hardest job gets the least education. And if you really want to feel calm and good at your job, then, you know, the more, you know, the more information, the better, and hopefully it's good information. Um, but so I think you get both at those talks, you get people who are anxious and they're coming to a talk because they just don't know how to proceed, but also people who are saying thoughtfully, I take this job seriously and I realize I'm not perfect at it. And I want to hear what some other people have to say to sort of, you know, bulk up my toolbox a little bit. So I think there's a little bit of both, but often it's usually, you know, people who are coming because they're really struggling. Right. Um, we definitely saw that when we did something about technology, like how many people are just freaking out, not knowing how to parent technology with their kids and that they're very anxious about that. Maybe actually, Ellie, you know what, um, given that, let me see, how are we doing for time here? Uh, a minutes. Okay. So maybe we can touch on that because one of our friends uh, made a comment about, I, I wasn't quite sure where it was coming from. You seem to have a better grasp on it. Do you want to just touch on Oh, yeah. Question? So, yeah, Jody was saying, like, you know, it'd be interesting to see if they were to make this movie today, right, what would that look like? And it's true because, I mean, I, I'm horrified thinking, like, imagine this film, but with phones and, with that have cameras and video and, like, the amount of technology we have today, like deep fakes, Right now, a note that you write on behalf of somebody and you pretend that it's from them, you can make a video with their face, like saying those things, even though they never said it. So it's just kind of a terrifying prospect. The tools that we have at our disposal to spread rumors, to, you know, um, to sort of escalate all of that blah, blah that was happening in the school halls and the ability to bully and put people through. So I think that's more what she was saying, like, not necessarily that teens are worse, but that teens have at their disposal, these incredibly powerful tools for spreading information, uh, unchecked, largely unchecked. So um, I was thinking about Jody's question um, all night. I was like, sort of like playing with it. Like, what's the angle that I would like to touch on that? Um, and so I think there's a lot of information out there for parents about, um, you know, the minutia of TikTok and Reddit and the dark web and all this. I, my experience is that um, while I think as a curiosity, it's fine to go and, and, and do that. I, I personally, when I'm working with parents and they say to me, they're going to yet another course on the dark web, I often will say that you probably would do better for your family to go to the gym and go work out for 40 minutes and burn off some stress. Um, right. and, and, and just really some, you know, some of those good endorphins. Right. Um, my uh, general take on this is the following. It's all about the relationship. Mm -hmm. So whenever you're doing something, whenever I'm working with a family and they say to me, I'm thinking of reading this book or I'm thinking of going to that course, or my question to them is explain to me the strategy of how this is connecting you to your kid to see and hear and understand them. If what you're doing is going to create more of a wedge that your kid's going to roll their eyes, kind of like when on a writer's character, right. right? And go, I know, mom, you're reading another book. I know, dad. You know, if it's going to create more of a wedge, 
even though you're getting the right information and even though you feel empowered because you understand the reptilian brain versus the whatever part of the brain, but it creates more of a wedge because your kid feels that you're talking down to them and you don't right. truly see, hear, and understand them for the struggles, right. the dreams they have, it's going to create more problems down the road. So I, I always try to remind people that this is about two sort of simultaneous processes, which is kind of tricky with adolescents. On the one hand, you're trying to figure out how can I stay connected to my kids so I can be a wise elder to them based on my experiences in this? How, how, how do I do that? And at the same time, how do I let go and let my kids scrape their knees, get their boo-boos and figure out how to, how this, you know, as you and I have called adulting, right? right? In the safe confines of a house before you have a mortgage and a marriage and kids and this. 100%. And so- yeah. It's that tricky, it's that tricky balance. So whatever resource you're using, whatever technology stuff you're reading about, is this helping you calm down? Is it lowering your anxiety? If it is exacerbating your anxiety, if you, if the next time you see your kid at breakfast and you're more anxious than before, even if the information is correct, I can almost guarantee you your kid will pick up on that. Yeah. Okay. And, and see this as more of a threat than an asset. So that's just my general yeah. North star for all. Yeah. This stuff. I, I mean, I've always taken from, you know, from speaking with you, from my own research, from uh, Elisa Klein Bieber, who's often come to speak about technology and teens, really the message has been the same across the board. This is just another area to parent. Mm -hmm. So however you parent other stuff, right being with friends, being in school, behavior here, behavior there, choices here, you just parent here too. So technology is no different. It's just another area to parent. Now, you might not understand technology the same way you would understand a play date or understand going to the park or understand what's going on at school. So in that way, sure, educate yourself, understand what those platforms are. And, and when your kid is struggling with one of them, understand what it is. And certainly understanding that the internet is not a private place in any way, shape or form, mm -hmm. um, you know, cause kids will say, oh, it's like my diary. No, it's not. It's a public forum. And no matter what you put out there, somebody's going to find it. Um, but just understanding how it works doesn't mean you know how to parent it. And, and I think that's where people sometimes get caught. Like, oh, this is, a, it's either some wild beast or it's like, it just gets totally ignored altogether. And, and uh, I, I, it's not an easy thing, you know, because it does have maybe different addictive properties than other stuff, but it's certainly something that we should just simply figure out how to parent. Um, and how well we parent in other areas is going to show how well we parent with technology most of the time, in my opinion. Very good. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I think that was Heather's place. Yeah. Wow. What a great film. It was so good. Um, they have talked about doing a sequel, believe it or not. I heard that. And I think it was also turned into a musical, right? Yeah. Uh, and a TV uh, series. Did very well. And a TV series. Huh. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I, I have to say, though, um, this is not a film you want to watch if, you, uh, if you're squeamish. But uh, my favorite yeah. film, like my top three favorite films, not 23, is uh -huh. a film called True Romance. written. By oh, Green yeah, Green, for Gino, sure. And Christian Slater. Uh, is it with Patricia Arquette? It's just yeah. that film it's is just awesome amazing. Film. So whenever I see Christian Slater, I think of a True Romance. You yeah. see, oh, you like that film? I love that film. It's an it's amazing am movie. Gary Oldman is the dreaded so drug dealer. Good. Amazing. Yeah. So amazing. So good. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Good movie. Well, is that okay. a '90s movie? '93. But now look, Ellie. Oh. I, I, <laughs> I mean, there's so many films that I'd love to All do, right. but we'll it falls so far it. outside of the mandate of JFI. Okay. Have a good week, everyone. Okay. Awesome. Amazing. Thanks, Avram. Okay, okay. we'll bye see bye. everybody next week. Bye.